your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox. Alongside us, as always, we're here for you every Tuesday. Thanks for checking in yet again on the Future Sox Podcast and the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com. Today's special guest, Aram Layton of the Just Baseball Podcast and Just Baseball Media. Go to JustBaseball.com for everything they have to offer. He's also a host of the Call-Up Pod, which is sort of what I'm interested in hearing about specifically because this is a podcast that really focuses on the minor leagues and prospects. And Aram has everything covered for you. But before we get into detail about that show specifically, Aram, tell us everything that you're involved in because you know we talked to Jack McMullen. He's one of your partners. And he gets excited about the Just Baseball Network. But after just talking to you briefly before we got this podcast started, uh, there's more to it. So please fill us in on everything that's going on on JustBaseball.com. Yeah, well, th- thank you so much for having me on. Excited to talk some uh, White Sox prospects and and big league stuff as well. Uh, it's It's been a, a whirlwind over the last year or so, just kind of growing the, the Just Baseball brand. Uh the way we created it, I wanted it to be a one-stop shop on the website to cover everything from, you know, big leagues to prospects, which, as you know, is is my forte, to college baseball, fantasy, and everything in between. But, you know, it takes a little bit of time to find the people to cover all of those things. And as we added all the writers, the next phase is I wanted to add, you know, the podcasts for each of that. So, you know, being able to scale up the network now to have a fantasy show, to have a college baseball show. Of course, the call-up podcast is what I've done for a while on the, on the prospects side, which is really what got me into this. And then, of course, the Just Baseball show for the big league side. But as you mentioned, Jack McMullen now hosting the show with uh, big leaguer Taylor Davis, which is show and go with Taylor Davis. And I'm really excited about the, the angle that that brings to our podcast network as well. They just had Dylan Cease on last week. He was fantastic. So having the player-centric podcast is awesome as well, and we're just really excited about scaling up the entire network and having it properly reflect everything that we have on the website, on social media, and everything as well. You can follow Aram on Twitter at AramLayton8 and go to JustBaseball.com, of course, to browse all of their inventory. Aram, I want to start with this. When did it begin for you? And over time, what have you learned about what has been a success and then what's um, forced you to make changes around your network? Sure. I mean, that's a great question. And I think we're still still learning that, right? I never really thought that this would be something that I could do full time, right? Because going to Syracuse, that's where I met Jack and we were both doing the play-by-play route. He's still broadcasting and, and that's amazing how he juggles the play-by-play in AAA Indianapolis uh, while doing everything that he does with us. But uh, for me, I was I took a job in the minor leagues to broadcast play-by-play, graduated in 2020. Uh, bad timing, of course, as uh, COVID canceled that minor league season. So my job disappeared before it, it really started. And I was really excited to you know get going in the booth and, and climb the minor league ranks. So I was very eager and uncomfortable with the idea of just sitting around uh, during that that layoff, I, with the uncertainty of you know where baseball was going to be, when it was going to come back, I I wanted to kind of have some control over something. So 
the one blessing of the whole situation on that side was that a lot of my other classmates who were very, very, very qualified and probably had their jobs in a holding pattern were available. And and so I came up with the you know idea with one of my other friends, uh, Peter Apple, who's a classmate of mine at Syracuse as well, and and Jack. And we, we talked about something that we can maybe do on the side in the meantime while we wait for clarity uh, around what's going to happen with sports and the world in general. And uh, I had always done the Prospect podcast uh, for Locked On at the time. And um, you know, that was growing and and I wanted to have a website where we could kind of have all of that. And it just started to grow from there where we just were doing it as a side passion project. And when you realize you really love something, all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier and you you put out a lot more uh, effort and work than than maybe you would have in anything else. So we just were putting out more episodes. We launched the TikTok, which was a big growth for us. And uh, the Just Baseball show really just started to take off. A lot of players were available for interviews. So we were able to get some high profile guests. And uh, as as we just kind of did this for fun, the growth was was just eye opening on social media and, and on the podcast side and then the website. And uh, we got to the point where we said, hey, we might need to try to, to catch this lightning in a bottle and see what we can do with it. And, um, you know, the rest was history. So a year and a half later, uh, we have it as a full time thing. You know, Peter and myself are full time. Jack is pretty much full time while juggling the uh, the broadcasting gig. And now we've got writers and social media help and uh, now adding more shows to the network. It's it's really been a dream come true. And I never thought that I could uh, make a living off of doing something like this. So just excited for what's ahead. And I feel like this is really still just the beginning. Well, and, and somehow Jack still has time to watch soccer and college basketball somehow. <laughs> I don't I don't really, you know, I don't ever understand his references on that stuff. But the fact that he has enough time to watch some of that stuff, in addition to the number of baseball shows you guys do, I think it's pretty impressive. So, you know, first thing I have for you, like I listened to a lot of your shows this off season, you know, based around the winter meetings and some of that stuff. And I think we had kind of heard forever, you know, just from fans, like that the baseball off season was boring um, and it needed to be more like football or the NBA. And, you know, like with the no salary cap, it just wasn't really a thing. Right. Well, this year it kind of was like, (laughs) we were pretty much done by January. So for you, and like you've said, look, you you did primarily prospects in the past, but you know there weren't that many trades for you to break down the prospect side. What were those shows like for you, and how fun was that having to just like turn on the mic and do like shows over and over again because there was so much action this off season? Well, I I love that you asked that question because you know it, it actually spurred a thought that that made me realize kind of how things started going for us during the lockout where it was a challenge of all challenges to to produce content. You know, most people kind of just put the podcast on ice or, you know, maybe recorded once every couple of weeks or whatever it was. And uh, we sat down and, and we were like, hey, let's just try our best to be creative and entertain people around baseball come up with topics, come up with episodes. And that's the blessing of being able to do it with, with your friends, you know, with Peter, Jack and I are our buddies. Like what's missing in, in the baseball discourse, you know, space, whether it's on the podcast side or the written side. And, and the biggest challenge for that was, you know, how we could fill that void in the lockout. And we did episodes every single day, still during the lockout, got creative. And I think that really challenged our, our creative muscles. And I think helped us earn some trust with the audience of like, hey, if these guys can can at least keep us mildly entertained during the lockout, well, I can't wait to see what happens when there's actually things going on. So when this we did have this crazy off season, man, it, it almost felt like it was uh, easy to a degree to, to just hop on the mic and record before it was like we're having these conversations of what we're going to talk about, you know, where we should go, what kind of things we can discuss to, to fill 45 minutes in an entertaining way. 
And then we get this crazy offseason. It was like sometimes Jack, specifically Jack and I on, on the Sunday episodes that would go out on Monday, we recorded on Sunday. We wouldn't talk over the weekend. We'd just know that we were, were recording at seven o'clock on a Sunday. Wouldn't even discuss what we were talking about. Literally would sit down and just turn the mics on, turn the camera on and go uh, because of how much we had at our disposal at, uh, in terms of just all of the action. So it was really fun. It was really helpful for us too, I think, because when you have all of that attention around the offseason, it's just great for baseball. And I, and I hope they keep it going this way. I hope this is something that we you know continue to see happen because the deadline is awesome. The trade deadline has always been great in baseball. Uh, and, and I think the offseason was was one of the challenges. And this was a really, really fun opportunity to kind of see what baseball can be if the offseason has a little bit more pace to it. One of the other reasons I wanted to have you on is because you're you're a Marlins fan, right? And I think we always kind of hear that the Marlins just like don't have that huge of a fan base. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's multiple Marlins topics that are somehow like kind of White Sox related and White Sox Twitter related. So the first place I want to go is just your thoughts on the Luis Arias trade, you know, I think obviously like you could argue it for both sides, but I think White Sox fans primarily are just happy to see Luis Arias like not in the AL Central anymore. Yeah, it's funny. You know, people always say that, you know, you know, a trade is usually a pretty balanced one or fair one uh, when when both fan bases are are not thrilled. Uh, and, and I felt like that was the general sense, right? Marlins fans were not thrilled to add prospects to their two-year controllable, you know, pitcher in Pablo Lopez. And then I feel like Twins fans, some of them were, were excited about the deal, and I think they should be. But others were, you know, a little bit skeptical of, of hey, why are we trading our, you know, our best contact hitter? And, and I know it's a little bit of an obsolete skill uh, in some people's minds. But when you are the Twins, a team that may be the worst example of three true outcomes in 2023, Arias is only going to accentuate that when you, when you when you subtract him from the lineup. So, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at it in a vacuum, the Marlins definitely paid a, a, a steep price uh, by adding, you know, Jose Salas on top of that, their infield prospect, and then, you know, a lottery ticket in Chorio. But at the end of the day, I'm not letting either of those prospects stop me from upgrading my lineup if I'm Kim Ang. And I think that's exactly why she pulled the trigger there. There's not a lot of teams that are going to be interested in, you know, acquiring a Pablo Lopez by subtracting from their minor or from their major league team, excuse me, because Pablo Lopez, quote unquote, only has two years of control. Any team that's acquiring a pitcher with two years of control is in win now mode. So if you're in win now mode, you can't really subtract a big league bat unless you have a surplus. The twins were kind of that match made in heaven because there's not many other teams that were willing to subtract an established big league bat for that established big league arm. And the Marlins were not interested in a prospect return. It's very clear that, you know, Kim Ang is trying to prove that uh, she deserves her job beyond this year. I think her contract is is up after this season. And I think she's trying to prove that they can make some gains in the, in the win column. I don't know if it's about making the playoffs. Obviously, that's the goal. But I think for the Marlins, it's more about, hey, we just took a big step in the right direction. Keep this front office intact because we are we are heading in the right direction. And I think that's what Kim Ang is hoping to do this year. And I think Luis Arias helps them do that. There's no doubt that this is a very bad offense. It was horrible last year. And they need somebody that is going to help set the tone at the top of the lineup. And I think Arias is just that. The Marlins have a pretty good track record of developing pitching. And I and I want to ask this two-part question about the Twins since we're on the topic, Aram, because Pablo Lopez is pretty damn good. And yep. you add it to a rotation with some names now with the Twins. If they're healthy, 
on paper, at least it suggests to me that they can compete. A lot of right-handers, though, in the rotation. So my two-parter is, does that matter to you that their rotation is heavy in right-handed pitching? And how good is the Twins, really, if we're looking ahead to 2023? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a fun division this year. You know, I, I really do believe that the White Sox are going to bounce back. I think last year was, you know, a, a mess in a lot of ways uh, that that some were in, in the team's control, some were, were out of the team's control. And for the Twins, it was kind of a mess, too. I think the whole Central had a little bit of a of a mess of a season besides the Guardians. And you know, this Twins team, I think, has addressed everything that they've needed to address. Again, the only concern I have is that three true outcomes offense top to bottom because you can't always just rely on the long ball, especially when, when you're when you're facing some tough arms and that vo- high volume swing and miss could be an issue. But I really like this, this Twins offense. I think it's going to be a lot of responsibility on these rookies or second-year guys, especially with with the trade of Arias right now, that kind of opens the door for Alex Kirilov, who I still really like, but seems to be you know just struggling to, to stay on the field. Jose Miranda, uh, sophomore year now, how is he going to look? I think he's a really awesome talent. Can Kepler stay healthy? Can Buxton stay healthy? Can Correa stay healthy? He seems to have been the last couple of years, but Joey Gallo, big bounce back candidate. So they have a lot of questions, but there's a lot of potential for, for great things in the lineup. It's volatile. I think the the rotation all of a sudden is very safe. I think that's the ceiling and the floor are kind of similar, but they elevated the floor significantly by trading for somebody like a Pablo Lopez, right? If you're not going to have uh, an ace or, a, you know, a bona fide ace or a multiple number two type starters, fill that thing with number three and number four type starters. And I think that's exactly what they did. You know, Pablo Lopez can give you flashes of that too. Sonny Gray can give you flashes of that too. Joe Ryan maybe can give you flashes of that number two, but none of those guys are established, you know, front end starters. At the very least, you're six or seven deep now of guys that are middle of the rotation to back end of the rotation starters with Gray, Ryan, Maui, Maeda coming back now. This guy was really good before the injury. And, and Bailey Ober was looking good before he went down. He'll be back at some point. So I think they've offset their their limitations pitching wise with just a ton of depth and I think that's going to help them a lot just to stay in it through the 162 game marathon all right so no more twins I'm sick of the twins already let's talk some White Sox prospects here Aram and uh the two that I want to get to first let's focus on because a couple of top 100 prospects according to Baseball America and others base Major League Baseball Pipeline as well considered Colson Montgomery and Oscar Colas, top 100 guys across Major League Baseball. So let's talk Colson Montgomery. Our projection is Montgomery is the number one prospect yet again in the Chicago White Sox farm system. Yep. Just want to get your overall thoughts on Montgomery's development and whether or not he could stick at shortstop in your opinion. Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll just start with, with Montgomery's development because that's the easiest thing to talk about, right? I mean, this guy, we put out an end of season top 100 update and we put Colson Montgomery at just baseball.com at number 30. And I'm going to be coming out with, with the 2023 rankings in the next couple of weeks, as well as the top 10 for the White Sox uh, system. And, and that'll be out in a couple of weeks as well. And, and I can promise you Colson Montgomery is, is far and away number one in the system. And it uh, is somebody that just really, really, really impressed me last year, not only with, with his polish, but also with with the power projection. I think that's something that that we didn't totally know how much pop would be there. And, and we saw flashes of what I think is is really impactful and, and plus raw power from the left side. I, I have to see a little bit more with the glove. I, I do acknowledge that there is some some risk to to move off of shortstop. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say that it's you know something that 
is anything more flagrant than the average, you know, big, you know, shortstop that you have to wonder how he's going to mature, right? I think for him, it's not about his ability. It's really just about how that body continues to develop. I see shades of, of Corey Seager, which at that point, if he stays kind of more slim and, and, and more nimble, then sure, he can stay at shortstop. If he starts to add a lot more muscle and, and thicken, thickens out, which is something that might not be in his control totally, that's a little bit more biological, then maybe he moves to third. But guess what? That would mean that he's hitting for even more power. So I don't think it's a major concern. I think that he can very well stay at shortstop. I think the actions are pretty good. I thought he continued to get better there. I want to say one thing, though, before I forget. Please don't be worried about the double A numbers. I don't. I didn't understand the whole Project Birmingham thing. Maybe you guys know a little bit more about that than I do. I thought it was a little bit forced to rush him up there to double A, and and of course he struggled. He wasn't quite ready, but I think he's an advanced hitter for his age, and I think he's going to bounce back next year in a big way at that level. And overall, it was a phenomenal season. Yeah, we we were pretty impressed. We we've said similar just about that, like hiking him up there. I think he starts there this year, and yes. then you know we'll see, but. You know, so the other guy that everybody here is talking about, obviously, Oscar Colas, I feel like I've been talking about him for years doing the international stuff and that side of things here. Just, you know, everybody with the White Sox that you ask kind of says like he's going to get every opportunity to win the right field job. Um, I guess just like your thoughts on that. And then something that we touched on, like the issues that he does have, like, you know, he probably strikes out too much. He doesn't walk enough. Like, you know, those things. Can he really fix that by going to AAA for a month? Because that's part of the reason why I kind of want to see him in the big leagues. Because I think he'll go to Charlotte, do well, not really, you know, fix any of those things. And then we'd have the same thing like a month into the season anyway. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And the the reason why I actually would like to see him in triple is because... For me, it seems more approach-oriented than anything. Right, We're talking about a guy that is extremely talented, absolutely demolishes fastballs. Against four-seamers this past season, he had over almost a 1,000 OPS. Uh, it, it crushes velocity. He's so quick to the ball. But chase rate near 40% is, is pretty ridiculous. And I think that's why we saw this guy barely walking when it comes to the strikeout rate. you know, And I don't think it was flagrant last year, but obviously it's, it's something of concern. I really think that if he just can can rein in the the aggressiveness a little bit and, and cut that chase rate down, we're going to see that walk to strikeout rate even out quite a bit. He has ridiculous pull side power. He has pretty good bat to ball skills, all things considered. His, his zone contact rates above eighty percent. He, he's he's a decent enough bat to ball guy with the power to I think be a a really solid and well-rounded hitter the the issue right now is that he is swinging at everything he is just a very 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 aggressive hitter and I do wonder if going to AAA where those pitchers will exploit that a little bit more they will make you get yourself out it is a tighter strike zone though as well I mean every hitter I've talked to that has made that jump from double to triple talks about how much tighter the zone is and, and how much better the command is from those pitchers. So it'll force him to be more selective. And I feel like it's a good feeling out process before getting to the big leagues. If he's mashing and triple with an aggressive approach still, then let's see him do it at the big league level. But I, I'd like to see him maybe for a month there while Gavin Sheets is you know holding it down for a month at the big league level. If he's really struggling, then, then you bring Colas up. Ultimately, I think Colas is the better option. And I know people talk about you know some of the concerns, but this guy – I think hedges a lot of it with 
really good splits against lefties and, and overall good numbers against all types of offerings and hits velocity really well. For me, it's all about approach and that's something that can be tangibly changed uh, with, with just a mindset. So I'm interested to see if he's able to improve that this year and I'd like to find out with a month in triple. That's really good stuff. We are talking to Aram Layton of Just Baseball, and we are going to take a quick break, come back, talk more prospects, because Aram, I have questions about the pitching staff in the White Sox organization. Some names like Noah Schultz, Peyton Paulette, so we'll get to that shortly. And also, I want to pick your brain about your top 10 that you have uh, going on. You don't have to give me all of it, because we're going to wait until you release it, but after you mentioned that, my, my brain started ticking a little bit. So we'll come back, talk more baseball. We're talking to Aram Layton of JustBaseball.com. Welcome back to the Future Sox podcast. Mike Rankin, James Fox, Aram Layton with you. We're talking White Sox farm system. We're talking minor league baseball. Just heard Oscar Colas. You know, that's an interesting take when you're considering Colas in AAA to start the year because given everything that the White Sox have done this offseason, I'm with you that – there are options in right field to allow Colas to open the season uh, in Charlotte because yeah, you mentioned Gavin Sheets and also they signed a number of non-roster invites that could fill the role theoretically. And also, hey, Aloy Jimenez, he says he wants to play outfield. Uh, so yeah, the White Sox are in good shape, don't you think, Arm in the outfield? Yeah, absolutely. And even just having you know Ben Attendee in the fold there, like of course you you want that that thump in the other corner. And you know, I'm not the biggest of of Gavin Sheets fans, but I think that this is a guy that's still young and and deserves a look as well. And you you mentioned some of the NRIs too, that they could maybe hold it down for a month. Uh, It's one of those situations where I don't think it's going to be a flagrant gap in the outfield. Of course, if if whoever's playing right field is struggling, then that's when you bring Colas up. But I, I think you have the opportunity to give somebody else a chance and see what happens. I think the outfield situation is a lot better. And yeah, if, if Eloy wants, wants a look out there, Give him a look. If, if he struggles, then that's when you bring up Colas. I, I think when it comes to a young guy like Oscar Colas, I know he's older in the prospect realm at 24, but ultimately, you know, has has missed some some ABs th- through the last year or so or a couple of years with his whole international situation. And, uh, you know, I think there's always that kind of situation where it's like, yes, we're very eager to bring this guy up, but you want to make sure you bring him up for a position of to put him in a position for success. And you also want to make sure you know what you have at the big league level uh, before you, you just bring up a youngster and potentially relegate somebody else to the bench. So I think that they have the liberty now, and I think they've made the moves that, that kind of put the writing on the wall to give Colas a little bit of time unless he absolutely just – puts on a show in spring training, which is very possible with the way this guy's able to hit. But yeah, I think the White Sox have bought themselves some time. And of course, that does also factor in that, you know, if you if you take your time, it's not blatant service time manipulation, but it does buy them an extra year of control with Colas uh, if they bring him up a little bit later. And in this instance, I don't think anybody would be sounding the service time manipulation alarms with Colas. So you might as well probably do it. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points, especially considering Oscar. It's a lot. You're, the White Sox are asking a lot from Oscar Colas if they expect him to be the opening day right fielder. All right, so I want to talk some pitching. The White Sox have been changing their philosophy a little bit in the draft, going after some arms. They're not afraid of Tommy John surgery. They're also identifying high spin rate pitches on certain individuals. And the last first-round draft pick that the White Sox made was Noah Schultz out of high school, number 26 overall, left-handed, Tall, lanky, throws really hard. Give me your thoughts on Noah Schultz and that pick. 
I mean, it's it's pure projection, right? And, and I, I like it because this is a system that really needs that that high high upside uh, pitching prospect. And I mean, you guys worded it really well uh, when you gave me the rundown, uh, and I'm sure we'll get to the other names of how they insulated Schultz with some other, you know, safer quote unquote, you know, pitching prospect selections in that draft. But for Schultz, I mean, the the, the ceiling is immense. And this is a guy that that is a really exciting profile. Just looking at, I haven't gotten an in-person look at him yet, but even just looking at the video and, and stuff from different angles, it, it's a really tough release point. And, and that's something that is a good thing and a bad thing. I think for Schultz right now, from that high three quarters release point, it, it is a nightmare for hitters from either side to really pick up. Uh, and, and it allows his stuff to, to work off itself really well. But he struggles to repeat that release point right now. Um, I always liken left-handed, tall left-handed pitching prospects to to baby drafts, right? They're a little bit awkward. They're still kind of getting their footing and, and learning how to control their limbs a little bit. And that's exactly what I see with Schultz. He actually re- reminds me a little bit in a way of, of Dax Fulton, another really tall lefty drafted out of high school by the Marlins. And you talk about Tommy John. He was coming off of Tommy John. And he really put it all together last year and, and, and had a phenomenal year. Uh, I think you got to be really patient with these guys. Uh, I think, you know, you, you have to know that it's going to take some time. And, and really, I think with Schultz, he has the baseline because of the deception, because the VLO keeps ticking up and keeps ticking up, that he can overpower guys with, with the fastball slider. I think the changeup is going to play really well off of that release point. It's going to be hard to pick up. But for him, it's all about repeating that delivery. And right now, even from the limited looks that I've got, that's been the biggest challenge for him. And and I think that's okay, right? That's something that's going to come with time. But I loved the upside of that selection because this is a guy that if if he reaches – his ceiling or or starts to show flashes of being close to that ceiling and developing in the right direction. This is a pitching prospect that, you know, instantly becomes far and away uh, the most exciting that the White Sox have and and could be one of the better left-handed pitching prospects in baseball. So that's something that you don't get a chance to do often when you're drafting late in the first round. I think the White Sox went for the upside here. So you mentioned it, you know, and I was just surprised at like he signed for slot in the first round, which let them, you know, take your flyer on Peyton Paulette. And then, you know, I think a little bit more certainty with Jonathan Cannon and they were able to afford all of it. So I was just, you know, like the night that the Nola Schultz thing happened, I was just very perplexed because we covered the draft. Like I knew they liked him, but I thought he was just going to be really expensive. And, you know, I think it kind of worked out. What did you think about just like the strategy with the next few picks after him? I like it. And again, it's just kind of, you know, what, what, we were talking about just before and, and how you guys worded it about insulating it. Right. Because for me, you know, you have to look at, at these pitching prospects, like, like assets to a degree too, because you know, you're not going to just wait on all of these guys to, to get, get to the big leagues eventually and climb their way through your minor league system. And you want to have something to show for that draft. So you want to have some of those prospects that are going to climb up pretty quickly and, and be able to put up some decent numbers in double a and, and have, you know, teams that'll be interested in those guys if, if you do want to make a move. And, uh, you know, if Noah Schultz is struggling, you want to have something to show from this draft. And I thought Paulette coming off of Tommy John surgery was that kind of delicate balance of safer because when he was healthy, he looked really good. And I think it could have been a buy low opportunity uh, as a guy that could have really pitched his way into the first round while also going with the super safe option, as you mentioned with Cannon, who I think is going to fly through the minor leagues. And while he might not have crazy upside, a lot of teams would be interested in him in a trade. I think if, if he continues to pitch the way I think he can and, and be that, you know, 
three ZRA guy almost all the way through the minor leagues, pound the strike zone and get a lot of ground balls. Uh, but I think it's a great way to approach the draft when you can swing for the fences with one pick, you know, do something in the middle with another pick and then go safe with the third. And it was very clear that the White Sox wanted to, you know, go get arms. And, and that's what I really like about the way they approached it was you pretty much guarantee yourself a, an arm that's going to be pretty quick through the system and cannon. And then, you know, the other two, you can be a little bit more patient on and, and hope that they can reach something close to their ceiling and really jolt this system uh, to the next level, which, you know, we know the White Sox have been towards the bottom of, of the league over the last few years. And uh, this is how you can try to jumpstart that, I guess, improvement of your overall farm. So obviously, you know, you said your list isn't isn't totally done and that's coming out over at Just Baseball, but like they did it in this draft, but it, it's been an emphasis, I feel like lately. And I think, look, like anytime you get like a Christian Mena kind of really pops, like after signing for 250K out of the Dominican, like that, you know, that wasn't planned, obviously, but that's like, you know, one guy that's right there in range. And then you spend money on a Norhe Vera and then Sean Burke was a you know, former third rounder that's like all the way in triple A. So, you know, just any general thoughts on those guys, like behind the, I guess the three that we just talked about. Yeah. I like Burke, man. I think this is a guy that maybe doesn't get the attention he deserves because nothing jumps off the page, but I would argue that the the amount of strikeouts that he was able to pile up in double A last year was was pretty intriguing. And and I think, you know, of course, the ERA is inflated a little bit high. Command was not the best. Uh, the long ball you know, definitely plagued him a little bit. But when you are striking out 99 and 73 innings, and you know, I thought showed some flashes of really good stuff, especially in high A, I think that the sputtering finish and triple with those two starts probably held him back a little bit. But this is a guy with a really good pitch mix, uh, with, a, with a good fastball, a couple decent breaking bones, and a changeup he mixes in here. Like I think this is a solid potential back end of the rotation starter. He was 22 last year, right? So to, to struggle a little bit in, in double and triple A at 22 years old but still compile strikeouts, that's somebody that's on my radar and it is definitely going to be well inside that that top 10. I think he's going to be probably in that you know set six to eight, maybe nine range. But I think with, with the White Sox, which is interesting, is that their top 10 is, is pretty clear cut to me, or at least that the top seven or so is just kind of how you want to interchange them. But I do think Lenin Sosa is, is a victim of, of prospect fatigue in a weird way because he had to get fast tracked to the big leagues. And now we have this sour taste in our mouth with how he finished the year. But it was only because of how good he was uh, during his minor league stint to even make himself a candidate to get forced to the big leagues. So, you know, I think it's important to kind of look at these guys situationally and, and and see where they're at. And I think with what the way this White Sox system stands, there's a lot of guys that are in different positions. But um, I will say Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos are two guys that I'm extremely excited for uh, this coming season. And, and I think that the rest of the group is is getting there. And, and I'm excited to see more from Mena, who, you know, what is he, just turned 20 years old. I, I'm very interested to see, you know, how he can build off of a year where he reached double A as a 19-year-old. And I know a lot of really talented players reached double A because of this whole philosophy that the White Sox had last year. But I think with a couple command tweaks with some of these arms, you know, these guys could really make that next step. So that's the good news about this White Sox system is all of a sudden there's guys that you can get excited about outside of the top three or four, which I don't know if that was the case as much over the last couple of years. 
That that's very well described, Aram. And I just have a quick follow up because you know we're we're looking at the top ten of the Chicago White Sox farm system, and to me, there's a lot of young talent there. And we look around the league; teams are moving pieces to get value, your big league value, immediately because they intend to compete. And when I look at the White Sox over the last couple of trade deadlines, especially the last one. I'm, I'm left wondering, is it a matter of these players have yet to fulfill their prospect ceiling to become intriguing enough to deal for value at this point? Where do the White Sox stack up and how do they stack up compared to the rest of the league when it comes to the currency of the game these days yeah. in terms of their value and prospects? Well, that, that's exactly why I liked the the draft approach there, right? Because I think they were, you know, building building some some pitching depth in the system for hopefully guys that will matriculate to the big league level. But at the very least, and I think building that um, that capital as well. If you do decide to make a move, because at the end of the day, you know, when you're making trades, if if you don't have pitching prospects that are, are of interest, then there's some teams that are are just looking for pitching prospects. You can't trade with them now. So you know, I, I think the White Sox were in an interesting spot too because you have the the prospects that I think are a big part of their future plans. And you're not going to part with those guys, right? Like you're not going to trade a Colson Montgomery. Brian Ramos is now looking like one of your more exciting young prospects. Colos is is potentially a part, a big part of their team this coming season. Lenin Sosa could be a big part of their team this coming season. So there was this weird in between of like prospects that aren't maybe impactful enough to, to go get you somebody at the big league level versus the guys that are impactful enough you don't want to part with them, and there's no in between, and that's the struggle, and that's why we see a lot of teams holding on to their prospects, especially if the system is not, you know, elite. But I look at this team now, and I see several prospects that you know are are close to making themselves very, very intriguing for a lot of other ball clubs. And I think the White Sox having more clarity on what their big league roster situation is will allow them to realize, you know, maybe who they can trade off of and, and what they can do in what spot. But you know, I think the the development or lack thereof of a Matthew Thompson and a Jared Kelly kind of hurt them in that regard because those are guys that you almost don't want to sell low because we know how talented Thompson is. I still I still think he's a solid pitching prospect who showed some really good things in flashes last year, but just couldn't put it all together. Same with Jared Kelly. Like those are guys you don't want to give up on and sell low for a, a flyer for another team because I still think they both have potential. Uh, but I think you see a Christian Mena and some of these other young guys that if they continue to show some flashes, those guys could be of interest to other teams as well. Um, and a Jose Rodriguez, that's another one where I think the White Sox have to figure out what the exact hierarchy is of their infield situation in their organization with a Lenin Sosa and Jose Rodriguez. Kind of similar in terms of, of where they're at in terms of prospect value. They're both young. Rodriguez a year and change younger, uh, but Sosa with some more proven success, at least in the minor leagues and already a taste of the big leagues. I think figuring out kind of what that hierarchy is uh, in that minor league system for them is, is important as well. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about Sosa like quickly. It's something that we've talked about on the podcast a lot. And you mentioned the prospect fatigue thing, but I don't know if he's just like, if he got kind of like his changes got lost, like industry wide. Cause even like, I look at professionals this off season that do this like as a career. Right. And you see Lenny and Sosa, where he is. And I just feel like he's getting undersold because he, he made legit swing changes last year. And like, we're not stat scouting here. Right. But I mean, he, he had a 140 WRC plus like playing home games in Birmingham. And then he's rushed to the big leagues. 
And then he sent to Charlotte and struggles initially, but then basically did the same thing to close out the year. So I just, you know, I think he's an option for the big league team this year because I think he's going to hit at Charlotte. Just what are your overall impressions on Sosa and just how the prospect profile changed last year? Yeah, you know, I thought that was weird uh, because I, I always talk about this and and I think it's one of the one of the weird phenomenons in the, in the prospect evaluation spaces. If Lenin Sosa was not rushed to the big leagues for a team that was trying to, you know, tread water and compete, let's say they kept him in AAA, which was probably very possible that he could have just played the whole season in AAA and didn't struggle for 11 games in the big leagues. W- would we be looking at him differently? Would, would, he, would he continue to have that hype as, as the breakout prospect last year who tore through double a and then had success in triple a something about him getting called up struggling then going back down and struggling a little bit then finishing strong i feel like almost almost hurt him it's weird that when a guy is looking advanced enough to to get a taste of the big leagues and then struggles there for some reason that is a bad thing right i I think that is a a weird uh fallout from what happened with sosa And, and honestly it ties back to the colas point because sosa is similar in the regard that he has even better bat-to-ball skills. I think he's an above-average hitter. You'll get zone contact. You look at the swing in general. You talk about the swing change. Like There's a lot of things that point towards him being a a 55-grade hitter. But his approach, he's very aggressive. I think above a 35% chase rate last year. You can get away with that with good bat-to-ball skills, and and he puts up above-average exit velos. He hits the ball pretty hard. He hits a lot of line drives. You can get away with that in the minor leagues. Um, even in AAA, I think it, it was exploited a little bit more. And then you get to the big leagues, they will absolutely exploit that. And that's exactly what happened with Sosa as a 22-year-old. So I think all that's missing for him is you know a little bit of, of an adjustment to his approach. And it, it got exploited in 11 big league games. I think this is a guy that once he figures that out, once he, he is a little bit more comfortable in that regard, he's going to be a very, very solid hitter. And I think there's a combination of above average hit tool, average power, which can make him a, a really nice second baseman with the glove that I think he can have there. So I, I think it's weird that that he had some of this, you know, I guess just I don't even know what you would call it, but it was it was a little bit of just sinking to his profile a bit, which was bizarre because he was everybody's favorite name to talk about midway through the season and didn't do that much to, to hurt his case when it's all said and done and you look back at the year uh, on a macro scale. This has been a treat. We could talk baseball with you for hours. I have one more question for you. As we look ahead to 2023, Major League Baseball is implementing some new rules. How will the shift ban and the pitch clock influence the way the league values players? That's a great question. Um, You know, I, I think on the defensive side is where it's the least talked about because it's the least sexy and, and the hardest to, to quantify. But I think when you're when you're talking about teams and just from, from some conversations I've had with like team officials, I don't know if they're looking at it as something that's going to massively change the individual offensive outputs, right? Uh, though I do think an Oscar Colas is, is a very, very good candidate to to benefit from this because he's a guy that you know struggles to lift the ball as consistently as he should. And especially, uh, I think on outer half pitches tends to roll over a little bit, but guess what? He hits the ball so hard that he could roll over and sneak one through the right side now and hit it hard. So like, that's, that's a guy that's going to benefit, but ultimately I think the biggest difference and the, the biggest value place is on defense, right? Because you, you are able to shift a little bit still, right? You're, you can move guys around, but there's going to be limitations to it. 
you need rangy infielders, right? If you can have a Lenin Sosa who is is still capable of playing shortstop, but is going to move to second base because of you know the, the presence of Tim Anderson, like that's good. That makes Lenin Sosa more valuable to me. When you have a, you know, in the Marlins case, a Luis Arias who's going to play second, like I think that is a little bit more hurtful because he was already stretched a bit thin range wise, and now you can't bail him out with some unique shifts and and throwing him into shallow right and having the the, the shortstop shaded over up the middle and and kind of shelter him a little bit from the lack of range. Having rangy second baseman, having rangy infielders in general, I think is going to help a lot. And I think that's the biggest difference we're going to see here is that uh, the the defensive side of things, I think there's going to be more value on infield defense because of that. I don't know if we're going to see any major, major changes offensively, except for the extreme candidates. I do think Kolos almost fits the extreme candidate department with the ground balls that he hits and, and with how much he likes to pull the baseball. But for the most part, I think it's going to be a big, big emphasis on defense real quick on the pitch clock. I think this is awesome. Look, there's going to be some growing pains and I think you're going to have some of the veterans, you know, whining a little bit and getting frustrated, but as, and I know you guys can probably attest to this too. I know you guys watch a lot of minor league games. The pace was awesome. The duration of the games was shorter, but also the action was more frequent. And I think that's the biggest thing. It's going to keep fans engaged. It's going to keep games shorter. And I think it's going to make games more fun and entertaining. And I think that's a very, very important thing for Major League Baseball. So I'm very excited about the pitch clock. Uh, but I, I do know that there's going to be some growing pains in the beginning, but in the end, I think everybody's going to be on board, which is exactly how it happened in the minor leagues too. Players were not that receptive in the beginning, and then they all loved it because they got home before 10 o'clock sometimes and were able to actually enjoy their lives a little bit more and hit the road earlier and, and all of those good things. So I think it's going to be good for baseball. Aram, thanks so much for joining us. Last last thing I have to do. So White Sox Twitter at times is a is a wacky place, and for some reason – there, there are just a lot of White Sox fans who thought for some reason that Jazz Chisholm would be available in a trade from the Marlins and also thought that the White Sox would even like have enough to get that trade done somehow. Can we can we put that to bed, please, here on the Future Sox podcast? Yeah, I can I can absolutely put that one to bed. Uh, even just talking to those around the Marlins circles that not not only are they uh, excited about Jazz Chisholm and, and center field, this is a team that going back to the initial point of Arias they are trying to desperately add any amount of wins. And the biggest weakness of this Marlins team is their offense. Jazz Chisholm led them offensively in in a lot of statistics, despite only playing 60 games, like counting statistics, despite only playing 60 games. This is their best offensive piece. Uh, You could say it's Arias in terms of proven ability, but with a full 162, the Marlins don't have anything close to Jazz Chisholm's offensive ability. They will not trade him for anything. There is no world where they trade him, uh, at least this year. Uh, maybe if they continue to struggle, something will change. But going into this season, there is no way they move him. Uh, they are desperate to try to win now and and produce any kind of offense this season. Uh, trading Jazz would be a step backwards and also would be, I think, really, really bad for their optics, given that that's the last thing they need as well. So that's something that I don't think this organization could survive. And I know that they would not entertain for a second. You picking the White Sox to win the Central? Oh, (laughs) Uh, with all due respect, uh, no. Um, But I do think they're going to be better this year. I do think that this is going to be, you know, a more competitive division overall. I think the Guardians are going to be tough to beat, but anything can happen. And guess what? I mean, the White Sox have 
have the star power if everything clicks to be right up there with anybody. So I am picking the White Sox to be better this year. I am picking them to be right in the thick of it, but it's going to be hard to to pick against the Guardians this year, I think, with what they did last year and you know some of the low-key additions that they made. Yeah, they just got to stay healthy and play to their 100th percentile and uh, everything will be fine. Aram, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Future Sox podcast. This has been great. Uh, give our boy Jack McMullen a, a little hello for us too. Will do. Thank you so much for having me on and uh, looking forward to uh, putting out this White Sox top prospect list soon and, and hearing what you all think. Yeah, we'll be bugging you soon about that as well. That's Aram Layton at Aram Layton 8 on Twitter. Follow at JustBB underscore media for everything. JustBaseball.com is your source. Aram is also the host for the Call Up podcast where he talks minor league baseball and prospects across major league baseball. This has been awesome. James, great find, great get. Give credit to you for getting him on the Future Sox podcast, and we're looking forward to talking to him again soon. And again, go to SoxMachine.com for everything that we have to offer as we're partners with Sox Machine at Future Sox. And we release podcasts every Tuesday. So if you like this one, go back to our library and check out the ones we did previously. And Arm talked about 2020. If you go back to our 2020 archives, uh, a lot of interesting names that pop up on that list as well. But anyway, thanks so much for being such a dedicated Future Sox supporter and listener. For Arm Layton, for James Fox, my name's Mike Rankin. We'll talk to you all next week.